You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. Later in the program, we have an excerpt from our public affairs program, KiteLine, from an episode titled, A Slightly Bigger Cage, Jail Expansion for Monroe County. More coming up in today's feature report. Also, coming up in the next half hour, the Monroe County Board of Health extended the countywide mask mandate through the month of October. More in the top half of tonight's show. But first, your daily headlines. The Monroe County Board of Health extended the mask mandate until October 31st at the September 22nd meeting. During public comment, resident Dr. Colin Elliott asked the board to consider adjusting the mask mandate to accommodate his son, Reuben, who he says is diagnosed with social pragmatic communications disorder. Reuben is exempt from the mask mandate. The mask mandate makes it clear that Reuben doesn't have to wear a mask, but the mandate as written still discriminates against Reuben because his teachers and his classmates cannot remove their masks when in a classroom setting or another indoor social setting. And let me just repeat that because I think it's important to understand because there are thousands of children like Reuben. Um, To create an environment which is inclusive of my son's disability and the thousands of children like him with whether it's social pragmatic communication disorder, dyslexia, autism spectrum disorders, Um, other communications disorders, other people around him must be allowed to remove their masks. So I guess I'm just asking the question, what is the county going to do to ensure that the mask mandate does not discriminate against my son as it currently does? Um, The county's vision of public health must include my son. It can't just be about protecting my son from COVID. It has to be about my son's development as as a whole human being. And so I just ask you to adjust the mandate in some way so that his present and future socialization is not harmed. And if you're unwilling to abolish the mandate, I understand that politically that's difficult. Um, I do ask you to perhaps give schools discretion to apply it in ways which best fit their students. Board member Carol Tulukin later said she empathized with Elliot's situation. However, the number of COVID-19 cases is still too high. And I have huge amounts of sympathy for you. I really, really do. Um, but I think sometimes it, it, it's, we just have to do what we can do to adapt outside of that. I mean, there's a whole rest of the day to, to, to work on issues. And I, I do appreciate it as a problem for him. I really do. Um, but I think that, you know, and I don't think it's practical to have a whole classroom wear a face shield. I think, you know, that's, that's not practical. And I, it, um, it's not right. I mean, he's exempt from the mask, but that's not the issue with him. He needs other. He needs. He needs other people to uh, be able to see their facial expressions. And I just hope you can do lots and lots of therapy outside of school, and work with them. And I can't hear you because you're muted. Um, but uh, you know, but I'd like I, to hear uh, some thoughts. I don't want to jump in though. But yeah. So anyway, but I, I I don't think at this point I don't feel as much as I have empathy for you. I don't feel we can make. And I understand your argument completely. 
uh, I don't think we're in a, in a medical situation, a public health situation, that we can do anything about it right now. Board member Ashley Craner expressed her preference to extend the mask mandate. She said that the numbers of COVID-19 cases were not in a range where she felt comfortable letting the mask mandate expire. And we're looking at really another 30 days, you know, another month of this. And if we can, in 30 days, we got to beat this pandemic somehow, or we're all going to be wearing masks, I think, forever and ever. And we might very well be. But, um, you know, I, I, I just the, the, the people that are getting sick and dying are, are concerning for me. And also everybody's frustrations with all of this is concerning to me. And, and I truly hear you and and the people that want to enjoy their church services um and get that full effect i i understand that um but i think the board you know i guess after hearing margie talk a little bit more i I wish we could like just give exemptions and make everybody feel better right now but for me i think i'm just gonna probably just stick to the next you know uh probably will be voting for the mandate just to stay in as is for the end of October. And hopefully we can see our numbers improve around here and throughout the state. According to Health Director Penny Caudill, the mandate could be shorter if the number of COVID-19 cases decreases into the blue advisory category before October 31st. The next board meeting is scheduled for October 7th. The Bloomington City Council continued the process of annexation at the September 22nd meeting. All in all, they voted to annex seven of the eight proposed areas for annexation during both special sessions. Councilmember Steve Volan remarked on individuals who are against annexation. He emphasized that they are already a part of the community. You know, this ordinance is striving to do the very thing that many people who are objecting to it uh, claim that they want to be part of, they, they say that they're part of this community, but here is the community moving to make them a part of the community, and they don't want to become part of the community. We're not trying to annex Smithville or Harrodsburg or New Unionsville. We're trying to annex areas where people say they live in Bloomington. Councilmember Isabel Piedmont-Smith addressed the concerns of the individuals who have made public comments throughout the annexation process. She outlined what the annexation would and would not do for residents in the area. What annexation will not automatically do, and this, I think there's a lot of uh, misconceptions out there. So annexation will not make you convert from septic system to city sewer. You only have to convert uh, to sewer if and when your septic system fails and if you live within 300 feet of an existing sewer line. It will not automatically install sidewalks on your streets. We have a long wait list for people who are in the city already who want sidewalks. So we will, you know, base those considerations on mainly on safety concerns. It will not automatically install streetlights on your streets. If you do not want streetlights, then the city will not and Duke will not uh, enter into an agreement to provide you with streetlights. It will not allow unrestricted development next door to you. You're not going to have high rises showing up on in your backyard. The city has strict development regulations in its unified development ordinance that protect both the environment and existing residential neighborhoods. After annexation is decided for certain, the city planning and transportation department will hold public hearings on what zoning districts will apply. Annexation will also not automatically bring a bunch of rowdy students into your neighborhood. 
uh, students prefer to live closer to campus, and that's already within the city limits. Just a few things that annexation will do. It will make it possible for bus service, including BT access service, uh, which is for people with disabilities, to extend to your neighborhood. It will provide hand rental inspection services for all residential rental, uh, um, rental properties, which is a safeguard for tenants. It will provide city maintenance and snow removal for streets. It will allow for our community to develop in a cohesive way and for us to plan in the long term uh, all of the uh, development that is um, adjacent to our, to our current city limits. It will allow people in the annexed areas to eventually vote for the city representatives who make decisions that affect your everyday lives. The nine of us here, the mayor, the city clerk. And finally, it will make you all part of the community that you already call home. The council voted six to three to zero on the annexation of areas 1B, 1C, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Those opposed to annexation say they plan to remonstrate, a process where if more than 65% of property owners in any given area of annexation sign a remonstration petition, the annexation of that area becomes void. The next Bloomington City Council meeting will be held on September 29th. At the September 23rd meeting, the Bloomington Historic Preservation Commission discussed a request for new construction at Restaurant Row Local Historic District. Commission member Jenny Southern explained the problems she could see with the proposed construction. I, uh, I would agree that uh, I really don't like that open bay a big concrete bay. It, nothing about that says it should be in a historic district. I, I prefer they had no parking at all to that. Um, also, I'm not sure are, if the builders are going to listen to us at all because I know uh, the siding on the previous building was not only the wrong size when they redid the one in front of this one, but is also a weird, shiny, printed something. The construction would be two four-bedroom apartments at 412 East 4th Street. HAND staff member Eddie Wright supported the project. We can make suggestions. Um, this fits the guidelines. Um, in fact, we set precedent by approving the building next door. So I, I, I think that we can ask Doug about the siding and ask that they do that. Um, but otherwise, I, I, you know, I think that this uh, does fit in. They're not trying to make this look old, nor should they. Um, it, so that's, that's why I'm supporting this project. The motion to approve the construction with the condition that they add four-inch siding was approved seven to zero to one. The next meeting will be on October 14th. At the Bloomington Board of Zoning Appeals September 23rd meeting, the board approved zoning for a home occupation on Arlington Road. According to attorney Vince Taylor, his client Robert Ayatarola has been running a pallet business from his home. He said that none of Ayatarola's neighbors have any complaints about the business. 
Development Services Manager Jackie Scanlon informed the board on the delivery variance that Ayaturilla petitioned for. Deliveries aren't allowed uh, for home occupations outside of typical deliveries uh, that you would receive uh, on a, a residential parcel. So um, the types of uh, the types of residential delivery services that are typically used um, for residents are allowed. Uh, but nothing outside of that. So he's requested a variance to that because he receives roughly 70% of the pallets that he recycles are delivered to the site and then he picks up the other 50%. Um, so that is why he has requested a separate variance um, because that is something that he is not sure that he meets under his current, um, uh, current operation. So those are the um, conditional use standards and um, I'm, excuse me, that are specific to home occupation. Petitioner Robert Ayatorola commented on why he believes his home occupation should be allowed to continue. I think Bloomington needs a pallet, some place to recycle pallets. I think businesses. I think I don't think uh, I don't think we need, need to keep dumping pallets in the landfill. I really don't. I don't think we need to keep tearing down trees because because cities might be narrow-minded about having someone recycling pallets. And, in their town. Um, I know they can be obtrusive, but I'm trying to keep it as aesthetic as I can. And uh, I, I insist on pristine, and I, I really do. I wish you guys would work with me on this. Uh, I've, got, I've got a lot of time, a lot of years with this. It's taken a while to build up a nice business. The board approved the petition unanimously. The next meeting will be on October 21st. During the latest episode of Kite Line, our weekly radio program devoted to covering prison issues in the Midwest and beyond, we broadcasted an episode titled A Slightly Bigger Cage, Jail Expansion for Monroe County. To provide insight on the Monroe County Jail Expansion, KiteLine spoke with Judah Shept, an organizer for the group Decarcerate Monroe County, or DMC. We will now broadcast an excerpt from that conversation. In 2008, Monroe County moved to build a new expanded jail framed as a justice campus using humanitarian rhetoric. In response, a diverse group of local residents founded an organization called Decarcerate Monroe County. Here's how they later summarized their activities. Quote, DMC's framework included embracing alternatives to punitive justice, promoting ways to decarcerate, and building a safer community. The Justice Campus proposal was defeated, and the organization went on to fight campaigns against gentrification and discrimination to ban the box, which is disclosing a felony conviction on job applications, to keeping police out of the Youth Services Bureau, unquote. Judah Shept, our guest today, was an organizer with the successful DMC effort to block jail expansion here, as well as a profound critic of what his book terms progressive punishment, in which humanist rationales are used to justify state violence in the expansion of caging. 
This discourse has reappeared locally with Monroe County's renewed drive to build new jail facilities on alleged human rights grounds, but is also a strategic feature of many prison and policing projects across the country right now. In the wake of the George Floyd uprising, institutions, which are founded on anti-Black violence and incarceration, are forced to use reformist language to justify the continuation and growth of that violence. Another example is the COP Academy, proposed to be built on top of a treasured urban forest in Atlanta, whose boosters mobilize social justice rhetoric to justify spending tens of millions of dollars on a new police training facility. Nicole Siegel conducted this interview with Judah and was also a contributor to Decarcerate Monroe County's successful campaign against the last round of jail expansion here in Bloomington. This is Nicole Siegel for KiteLine. I'm interviewing Professor Judah Shept of Eastern Kentucky University Justice Studies. He is the author, uh, most recently, of Cole Cage's Crisis, The Rise of the Prison Economy in Central Appalachia, coming out from NYU in March of 2022. And before that, the author of Progressive Punishment, Job Loss, Jail Growth, and the Neoliberal Logic of Carceral Expansion, his first book also from NYU, which was an ethnography of the controversy around jails and new jail construction in Monroe County, Indiana, here at home in Bloomington. I'm interviewing Professor Shep today because uh, we have another proposal on the table for something that is eerily familiar to um, what Judah wrote about, oh, these 10, 15 years ago. So Judah, welcome to KiteLine. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. I want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit more about Progressive Punishment, the book that you wrote about Monroe County, the process of writing that book, and what you came to argue, what you came to conclude and argue in that wonderful book. Thanks so much for that, Nicole. It's really amazing to be in conversation with you. It's a pleasure to be on Kite Line and to be speaking with my old and beloved community in Bloomington. So yeah, thanks for that introduction. Progressive punishment, as I think you said, emerged out of several years of organizing and dissertation research while I was a graduate student at Indiana University. I was already pursuing a PhD in criminal justice when this proposal was circulated to dramatically and in fact exponentially expand the existing carceral system in Bloomington by way of building something that officials were calling a justice campus, which would have sat on 85 acres on the south side of Bloomington and would have included a brand new jail with double the capacity of the current one and actually room to expand by double the capacity again, a new juvenile detention facility, and a new work release center taken together that would have, like I said, exponentially expanded the existing you know, capacity of the community to arrest and detain and incarcerate uh, its residents. So this proposal began sort of circulating, I think, in about 2007. And a number of us began just sort of talking about it. And I'd say pretty quickly within the span of a month or two, this was in the late winter, early spring of 2008, pretty quickly we began holding community meetings and sort of more formally organizing as a group that came to be called Decarcerate Monroe County. That group of people included really amazing local residents, including Nicole Siegel, and we began 
holding popular education sort of meetings in town and hosting our own meetings and attending county meetings. I just, I remember that moment with, with so much enthusiasm because when we began organizing, there was just a, you know, a rush of public support for our organizing. And the the little group that we formed became just, you know, solid and vibrant. And it was so clearly an issue that spoke to people. There was so much opposition to the jail and there was, the activism was just, you know, intense and uh, it was this fervent of intentionality uh, in opposition to this jail. And it was so deeply nourishing to be a part of that movement in that moment. I, I remember it very fondly. I think it's important to, to recognize that there was something about that moment that made it possible for that to happen. I do too. I think that's a really important point. I think, you know, it started with four of us talking and very, very rapidly became something much larger more dynamic. It didn't mean that there was one sort of central political tendency of the group. I think we had some really important strategic and analytical differences even within the group. And I think that was really valuable. And I think just to build on on what you said, I think there was enough opposition and enough openness to opposition that we wound up, in fact, sort of shifting the common sense of at least enough people who were in positions of political and civic leadership, that the prospect of building the Justice Campus lost a lot of political capital. There were a number of people who would say to me during the course of my research that it was, in fact, our work as a group, the questions that we asked, the exercises that we facilitated, the analysis that we offered, that made them really stop and, and rethink what had been their support for expansion. So would you talk a little bit about some of the research you did outside of Decarcerate Monroe County or DMC, your conversations with officials and politicians in the city, the county, and the justice system? Yeah, absolutely. So during that summer of 2008 is when, um, or maybe a little bit later, is when I began sort of formally doing dissertation research as I was also active with Decarcerate Monroe County. And that dissertation research involved attending a lot of community meetings, some of which we hosted, many of which the county hosted, including four uh, of sort of official hearings about the Justice Campus that featured local officials as well as the county's consultant for, for the Justice Campus. And it involved, to your question more specifically, interviewing a lot of different, I don't know, quote unquote, stakeholders, people who had expressed a lot of support for the Justice Campus. So I sat down with a number of different judges and interviewed them, county commissioners and county council members, as well as other county residents who showed up to meetings and who clearly had sort of uh, strong opinions about the Justice Campus. And many of these people, in fact, I would say just about all of them, what was so striking to me at the time, and this is again about 2008, 2009, is that many of them had pretty informed and acute understandings and analysis of mass incarceration or the carceral state and the drug war and things like that. They would speak out against those things publicly and certainly in interviews with me. And then almost literally in the next sentence, turn around and say, we can do incarceration differently in Monroe County. And they would endorse the Justice Campus and a particular sort of vision of the Justice Campus. And that to me was at least the initial and certainly ongoing 
kind of central seeming contradiction that I wanted to examine. That is a striking paradox. You know, how could they articulate opposition to mass incarceration and then support for a new jail within the same paragraph? How how did you come to understand that? What allowed them to hold what would seem to be a position of pretty intense cognitive dissidence? I mean, that to me is the central question. I'm not like certain that I have the answer. I think there's a few things I would say. I think a lot of what you would hear at those meetings, and I'm guessing people listening 12 years later still here in Bloomington, is the invocation of Bloomington as a kind of exceptional place, maybe nationally, certainly within the context of Indiana. And I think people's sense of Bloomington's exceptionality led to this belief that somehow the politics of the carceral state could stop at this sort of imagined border, geographic and ideological and political border around Monroe County, such that we could somehow expand. And in in the case of the Justice Campus, I got to say it again, like dramatically, exponentially expand the county's ability to incarcerate its residents. And yet at the same time, do so in such a way that it would be almost like a form of opposition or resistance to mass incarceration. It does seem like a complete contradiction, but I came to understand it as almost like a filtration system, like people were sort of able to filter out the analysis that they would otherwise hold with respect to increased jail infrastructure or prisons or whatever, and endorse something very different. I think the other thing going on there that's really important to name is I think we have this, and by we, I mean, not just Bloomington, I think this is a much larger sort of concept that we tend to invoke the concept of community in ways that are very sort of generalized and that ignore the state. Or to be more specific, that ignore that in at least some contexts, community probably should be understood as a scale of the state. And so Bloomington officials and others who who would sort of offer this seeming contradiction, I think were imagining that the carceral state was something outside of Bloomington. And that the municipality's ability to expand jail and juvenile detention and whatnot was somehow not an expression of the carceral state at the county level, which, of course, it exactly was. Wow. I just I want to just sit with that for a minute, that the concept of community is used in a way that ignores the state. And rather than thinking of it as something outside the state, as people tend to do, as people are really attracted to doing, we should understand it as a scale of the state, as an object that has a scalar relationship to the state. That is, it is some small scale version of the state. That is, is that what you mean, Judith? I, yeah, I, I don't want to, I want to be clear. I don't want to abandon the notion of community. I think it can be invoked in really important revolutionary ways. I just think that at times, maybe most of the time, the way that it functions is to sort of mystify the fact that the city or the county or whatever that we might be invoking as a geographic representation of a community is in fact just the state at a particular scale of its expression. That to me, I've come, I'm not even sure if I say that in that way in the book, but that is how I've come to understand it some years later. 
I suspect that's what's happening in, in a place like Bloomington where, or to me, that's maybe the best explanation for the cognitive dissonance that you named. I think that's undeniable when you look at the proposal that's on the table right now in Monroe County for the exploration of the possibility of a new jail. The concept of community is all over this proposal. And in fact, there are a couple other keywords that I think are also going through this kind of meaning creep. You know, their meaning is creeping away from what it originally or what, you know, what it previously meant when it had something to do with protest and social justice and now is coming around to the side of containment. There are two consultants right now that the county is hiring to explore the possibility of a new jail. And one of them is called Inclusivity Strategic Consulting, Inclusivity. And the other is called RJS Justice Services. Um, there we see, of course, the word justice, which is at the center of the issue we're discussing, the criminal justice system. Community is also all throughout this report, especially in the proposals offered by inclusivity, strategic consulting for community services, community-based treatment, community-based, community after jail, community corrections, community-based criminal justice supervision. This community is, in fact, used five times in a single paragraph when inclusivity strategic consulting offers up its proposals. It's, it's undeniable that we, we need to be skeptical of some of these terms that have been so profoundly perverted in their usage and their meaning. To listen to the full program, visit WFHB.org. Stay tuned for next week, where KiteLine will feature more of the interview. KiteLine airs at 5.30 p.m. each Friday. The program is available online or wherever you get your podcasts. 